Well, thank you so much. It's a joy to be with you again. I've so enjoyed doing this series with you. I shall miss coming across each month, and uh, it's been a great blessing. I brought my friend Andrew with me. I was just saying to him, what a pumping church this is. It's, uh, it's a great joy to be here. I've loved the worship. I love your preparation for Christmas, your impact in this region. Very proud to be associated with you, often boast of you when I'm in other places. So thanks for the welcome, and let's pray that I'll be a blessing to you this evening. Uh, we're going to look in Hebrews and chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, reading a few verses from verse 11. Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who've been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the joy of singing your praise. These great truths that have been on our lips as we've sung out, Lord, you are an amazing God. Lord of everything, no other God or king is like you. Powerful and strong, yet tender is your song to me. Lord, we love these things. We love the wonder of your power, your majesty, your might, and yet your incredible sensitivity to the individual father it amazes us you're an amazing god and we love singing to you we love lord shoulder to shoulder with others around us singing out your praise we love it lord we love being with you and father we ask you right now for the help of the holy spirit we confess our shortcomings without your help so holy spirit we ask for your empowering we pray for a Father, please, a spirit of revelation that our eyes might be opened, we might see things we've not seen before that will help us in our walk with you, help us to glorify you. So Holy Spirit, come to our aid, we pray. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The passage that we're looking at then speaks about our having our conscience cleansed from dead works in order that we might serve the living God. That's our theme for the evening, carrying on and concluding this short series on grace. A conscience that's cleansed from dead works. What do we mean by dead works? We might say, well, we're not into that kind of thing. We're, we're evangelical. We're spirit-filled Christians. We're not into formal religion. We're not into dead religion. That's not our world. But I'd just like us to be a bit more self-critical and challenge ourselves a bit and say, hey, we need to beware, we need to be careful. We're very conscious that our nation is full of buildings that used to be churches. Certainly in my hometown of Brighton, when I was living there, some 15 churches were earmarked for closure. Buildings that used to be churches are now warehouses, they're libraries, they're schools, sometimes they're even mosques. 
and the church seems to be fading, but churches are not kind of alive one day and dead the next. Uh, we used to have a little tree in our garden, and uh, it kind of caught a disease. I'm not very clever at these things, but we saw this little tree gradually kind of dying from the edges in, and then it was gone. And uh, death creeps on. So we need to be careful. We want to be alive in the Spirit, and grace will teach us how to do that. And so we're looking at this theme tonight about our conscience being cleansed from dead works. And what are, what, are, what are dead works? Well, let me suggest they are works that we do that are without certain aspects, like faith, for instance. We, we can be involved in a, a religious duty which has no longer got faith attached to it. Maybe at one time when we began to do a certain thing, we maybe uh, began a certain kind of a meeting or an outreach or something we were very excited about. As time slips by, it becomes routine. You might even say, why do we do this? Well, I don't know, we've always done it. And that can creep into a church. We do it because we do it. We're not sure why we do it. But there's no sense of God will come, God will do, God will act, God will own us. That's kind of gone now. It's just where well, we always do it. One of the girls in the church that I was pastoring for a long time asked her mother, why is it that when we cook the Sunday roast, why, why do we cut off the ends of the meat and put the two ends on the top. Why do we do that? And her mother said, do you know, I don't know, actually. Uh, Grandma always did it. I've always done it. Uh, Grandma's coming at the weekend. Ask her when she comes. I'm not sure why we do it. It may be to let the juices flow. I'm not quite sure uh, why we do it. Grandma came. Grandma, why do we cut off the ends of the meat and put it on the top when you do the roast? And Grandma said, you still do that? He said, why? yeah, but why, why do we do it? And she said, I used to do it when the oven was so small. It was the only way I could get the meat in the oven. You know, the reason for doing is long gone. It's kind of who, who remembers, but we just keep doing it. And church life can get like that. You can go into churches and you think, why do you do this? We just do it. And, and that means there's no faith. There's no sense of, what will God do? God might come. I, I, I pray that every time we come on a Sunday, I wonder what God will do. And so faith, a work without faith, without the anticipation, God will own this. God will be involved in this. It can become just keeping the wheels turning and death begins to creep in. Even if it's not well-defined faith, like we believe X number will be saved, that kind of faith, at least hope. I love that story of Jonathan and his armor-bearer where it says he went out and he said to his armor bearer, let's go out against these Philistines. And he said this, perhaps the Lord will act. So at least he took his perhaps into battle. He didn't stay at home with his perhaps he won't. It was like, perhaps let's go. Let's see what God will do. And it's a great story. And uh, there comes a kind of a turning point where, where hope begins to become, hey, faith. So at least, at least we're doing this thing. We're, we're coming up to Christmas. We're coming up, all these meetings, carol services. Why will we always do carol services? No, that's not what I'm hearing from the platform as we're talking about it. We're saying it's a great chance to get to people. Let's keep that sense of hope. It's in our hearts. We're not going through the motions. But I'm sure you could hear what I'm saying. There'll be many carol services around this nation. We'll have not an ounce of faith. Just be doing it. We're going to say, oh God, I don't want to get there. I want to make sure we're approaching this with a real spirit of faith, a real expectation God will work. 
Without those things, they become a dead work. Another kind of dead work I would, I would call a presumptuous work. What do I mean by that? Well, I think one of the great, the great faith exploits was when Joshua went into the land, and it says Jericho was walled up to heaven. I can imagine Joshua being absolutely terrified. He looks up at this great city. It's like, Moses, what? Oh, he's gone. Moses is gone. And have you noticed the River Jordan closed behind you? And have you noticed the manna stopped yesterday? Oh, where's God? Do you want help? What are we going to do? And he's looking to God, and God speaks to him, gives him instructions. Then you get that classic phrase in Hebrews 11, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. Wow. What a tremendous thing. Walls fell. Breakthrough came. How? By faith. Then you get this. They ask, what's the next city? And someone goes and looks at it and comes back. Oh, it's Ai. It's nowhere near as big as Jericho. If we can take Jericho, we can take Ai. And just in one quick step, they move from dependent faith to presumption. We can do that. If we can do that, we can do this. And, it, and death creeps in very quickly because they think, oh, we can handle this. There's no longer a looking to God. It's presumption. It becomes dead. So easily done. Another way we could express dead works are the sort of thing when Peter, even after the resurrection, said, I'm going fishing. <laughs> what did it do? It caught nothing. Why? It wasn't directed. It wasn't something God told him to do. It's very easy to get into things God hasn't told you to do. When I was in the first church I was involved in, I had a call from the school I was taught in, and I was a very backslidden Christian. I I got saved when I was 16, but I was a terribly messed up Christian. I was a terrible testimony. And, And this school got in touch with me and said, we understand you're now a pastor. Um... Would you be willing to come in one day a week and teach religious knowledge in the school? I thought, wow, what an opportunity. I could turn things back. I could put some things right. I could try. You know, I was so excited about it. And I thought, Lord, thank you. What a tremendous opening. I'm going into my old school. I can preach the gospel. They're giving me a lot of freedom. This is very exciting. And I'm kind of praying about it. And I'm kind of getting no comeback. You know, when you pray and you think, it's like no one else is excited about it. I'm excited about it. And, and I felt God said to me, what have I called you to do? And I said to the Lord, uh, well, pastor this church. And then there's this, and I felt God saying, I'm not calling you to that. But it's an open door. It's a tremendous opportunity. I felt God said, it's not for you. I had to get in touch with a friend who, uh, British Youth for Christ, worker, friend of mine, he followed it through. Others had to do it. And I had to understand this, that just because a door opens, it doesn't mean it's for me. Because otherwise, if we're not careful, somebody ought to do that. And have you seen there's an opportunity? And, and what we can find, dear friends, some of us are, are kind of wired this way. Oh, I'll do this, I could do that, I might do that. And you might find a note at home. Uh, food's in the oven, I'm out. Because we're doing so many things. And why are we doing it? Well, somebody ought to. There's a door open. Did God commission it? Have you got faith? I haven't got time for faith. We've got to do it. And, and we're just getting involved and busy, busy. Got to be so careful. That, that becomes a dead work. It creeps in. You can look busy, but it can be dead. And then finally, and obviously, I guess, 
1 Corinthians 13, Paul says some amazing things. He says you can, you can have faith to remove mountains. You can understand all mysteries. You can give away all your money to the poor. He said if it's without love, it's nothing. I mean, it's a pretty devastating statement. I gave away all this without love. It's nothing. And so he's, he's writing over these things. No, you, you're, you're missing the point. You're just busy. You're active, but it's not love motivated. It's, it's not what God's looking for. So you find the comparison, actually, with Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. When he says to the Thessalonians, I know your labor of love, your work of faith, the steadfastness of your hope, Tremendous things he commends this young church for. Then you find Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus in the early chapters of Revelation. He says, I know your work. I know your labor. I know your steadfastness. Exactly the same three words. But it's not a work of faith. It's not a labor of love. It's not steadfastness based on hope. It's just the, it's the shell Without the heart, the heart's gone. They're just the shell is there. And Jesus says to the church there, unless you come back to the love you had at first, I will remove your lampstand. It's a scary word. I wouldn't like to be the pastor of a church where the lampstand's been removed. I guess you could still walk in the door. I wonder if you discern. Jesus says that's a category that can happen. A church whose lampstand has gone. It's not defined, but it's kind of threatened. It's like in the Old Testament when God spoke to Saul, and he said to King Saul, today the kingdom is removed from you. I don't think that means Saul couldn't get in the palace the next day. But it does mean from now on, God's not owning this. Today, today is happening. And so, beloved, it's possible that Jesus can say, enough. He said that to the Ephesus church. Unless you come back, I will remove your lampstand. Why? Because the thing that's uppermost in his heart is, where's the love that's motivating it? What's happening here? And so we can drift into this, and dead works can begin to creep in. Okay, so that's the warning. And let's see what the Bible's going to say to us. Let me just see this. Why is it that Christians get involved in what I've called, and what the Bible calls, dead works? Why do we do it? Why do we do stuff that we don't have faith for? Why do we do stuff that we're not even hope? We just do it. Why do we do it? Well, I believe the verse gives us the clue. It says, the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience from dead works. Often we get involved in religious activity because we've got a troubled conscience. We want to keep our conscience. And so we do things hoping that that's okay with God now, or hoping that other people will feel good about us. Our conscience is not secure by the blood of Jesus. We haven't understood grace. When we understand grace and have really got hold of what we've preached the last couple of times, we are free to not get involved in conscience work. We don't have to do anything to justify our existence. What do I mean? Well, when I was in this church, I started, and I mentioned, I, when I was there, first church I went to, and we, we were, in the early days, the Holy Spirit was being poured out. We were experiencing radical new things. This is right back in the, you know, the, the 60s, and people are getting filled with the Spirit. What's going on? And we are, we're busy. I mean, we're very involved internally handling these changes that are happening, and not very involved with the other churches. 
And, and we gradually made our way through. We got through. The church was making good progress. And I felt, I felt God said to me, come on, lift your head. There's a broader body of Christ in town. And so I went along to the local pastor's fraternal and said, you know, we've been very busy, but we'd like to be more involved, more friendly with the believers around. And I was warmly received. Yes, by all means, come. And within a, just a few days, it seemed to me, within a week or so, a guy came to my door, said, I, I hear that your church is coming in with all the churches. So I said, yeah, we, we want to have more involvement. We want to show ourselves friendly. And, and they said, yes, I'm so pleased. He said, because next week, all the churches are going throughout the town, giving out envelopes, asking for money. And we're so pleased, pleased you're coming in, because you can help us with it. So I said, um, I don't think we're going to do that. You said you were coming in. Yeah, well, we do want to have more friendly involvement, but we're not keen on asking the money from the people who don't come from church. You know, we don't want to do that. He said to me, all the churches do it. Then he said this, even the Roman Catholics join in. <laughs> and what's he doing? What was he trying to do to me? He's trying to, to manipulate my conscience. He's trying to make me feel bad that I won't do it. He's trying to get me doing action to justify our existence. And beloved, if you're not clear about grace, you're very vulnerable to that. If you're not clear about grace, you think, oh, what will they think? Better do it. So I go and tell the church, next week we're going to because, well, you see, church, even whole churches can get sucked into things because what will the others think if we don't? But if you're clear about grace, you're free from that. Because you've read verses like this in Romans, it says in Romans 4, 4 and 5, to him who does not work, but believes in the God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is regarded as righteousness. To the one who doesn't work, but believes, he's declared righteous. So it's like I was saying to the guy, no, we're not coming, and I'm still righteous. Hallelujah. <laughs> now, I didn't say that, but in my heart... In my heart, I am unfazed, I'm untroubled, because I've grasped grace. I don't have to do it to vindicate myself, because Jesus has vindicated. I'm no longer under law. I've got a righteousness that's nothing to do with my activity. It's all his righteousness has been given to me freely as a gift. So I don't have to do it. I don't have to do it. I say, no, I won't do it. Goodbye, God bless you. I really don't care what he thinks of me. Because that's not the deal. I, my conscience has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. I'm a free agent. I'm a free agent. Now, it's very important that we understand that. Otherwise, we can find we can be in church and somebody says to you, would you help with the children? And you think, noisy, smelly things. Oh, yes, of course I will. Yeah. <laughs> and then you go home to your husband and say, I hate kids. I'm going, no, no. Why do you do it then? Well, what would he think of me if I didn't? What will they say if I don't? Now, it's at this point the pastors get a bit nervous. They think, what's he preaching here? I should be putting the chairs out next week. What's going on here? No, we need to understand this, that we're not meant to do stuff to justify ourselves. We're not to, meant to be involved in activity, which if it becomes the model of the church, and everybody is doing things because of what will they think if I don't, 
we're killing the church. We're losing something hugely important. Now, does that mean God doesn't want us to serve? You know, we're a grace church. We don't do anything. We've understood grace. We don't do it. We just sing. Hallelujah. Now, let me just remind you of some famous verses, which you know very well. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Right? So God is interested in my doing good works. Zealous for good works. Next one. Matthew 5, 16. That men may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It's a really great motive. That God may be glorified. So it's our good works that bring glory to God. Thirdly, John 9, 14. We must work the works of him who sent me. The night is coming when no one can work. He's introducing a note of urgency. The kind of cut-off point. You can't do any more now. It's over. It's finished. No more opportunity. We must work now while we can. So urgency is introduced. And then the last one I'll mention, Revelation 22, 12, virtually the last verse in the Bible. Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he's done. God wants to reward us for our works. Okay, so there are several verses here that say God is interesting, interested in our working. So what does the verse say that we started with? The blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience from dead works, not so that we can sit around, but so that we can serve the living God. Serve the living God. God does want us to serve him, but it's about motivation. It's not about justifying myself. It's not about what will she think of me if I don't, what will he think of me, what will God think of me. That's not the point. And we need to be free from that, absolutely free, or we'll be cluttered about with wrong motivations. And so we have in this passage saying, look, no, God wants us to be zealous for good works. He wants us to serve him. He's keen for us to serve him. Let me just take you to a, a passage in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, just a few verses. We'll spend a few moments here if you want to turn to it. Verse 13, he says this. Well, let me just go back a little bit. He says, No one else can lay a foundation than the one that she is laid, which is Christ Jesus. If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which is built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Now, what a, this is a difficult passage to look at, okay? So he's saying, every one of us will have our works tested by fire. Every one of us will stand before God. God looks at our works. We will go through the fire test. And if, the, if, the, if our works stand the fire test, there's a reward. Some, he says, will suffer loss. The works will go up in flames. They're not there anymore. It's wood, hay, stubble. But he says... But they'll be saved. Because we're not talking about salvation by works. Salvation is by faith. 
It's a gift of God. We're safe. We're eternally safe. We're His. We belong to Him. We've passed from death to life. That's a done deal. That's done. But now, having been declared righteous, having been accepted, having been joined to Jesus, then He gives us opportunity to serve Him. And as we serve Him, He wants to reward us. It's rather like when Jesus was in the temple, and it says the rich guys came in. And, and it says they're, they're kind of just giving out of their abundance. It's like a guy standing there, and he's just pouring it out, you know. I'm just, I've made this, I'm so generous, you know. He's doing it pretty ostentatiously, openly, putting his gift in. And then the little lady comes in, she's got two coins, and she doesn't really want anyone to see her, and she slips it in. And it's like, let the fire fall. Let me give you a model or an example of the test, the fire test, that will happen to us all. That will happen to us all. That the fire fall. And so the fire falls, uh, you know, the smoke lifts. Where's that guy's gift gone? It was without love. It's nothing. It's nothing. Then, hey, wait a minute, let's just look. Where's that woman's two coins? And Jesus said she actually gave all she had. And let the fire, hey, wait a minute, the smoke, what is that? Hey, gold, silver, precious stones. It's, it's something more than actually what's there. It's what that came from. What, where, what's the heart? And he says, I will, God wants to reward. Now, it's interestingly, Paul's response, he sets out the teaching in chapter 3. Then in chapter 4, he talks about his own response. He says, it's required of a servant to be found trustworthy. Verse 3, 1 Corinthians 4, 3. To me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. Very, very interesting verse. I'm not troubled by what you think. I don't even examine myself. Now, in the same epistle, when he's talking about the breaking of bread, he says, let a man examine himself. In the same letter. So I, how do I understand that then? I think he's saying, I'm not constantly taking my pulse. Am I all right? Am I all right? Some Christians are like that. Am I okay? I say, I'm not conscious of anything against myself. I'm not conscious of it. But then he says this, but I'm not by that acquitted, or what's the word he uses? I am not by that justified, acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. So I'm not interested in your judgment I'm not even interested in my judgment. Ultimately, God will judge. And then he says, this is the most, I think, key verse. Verse 5. Therefore, don't go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. He will disclose the motives, the things hidden in darkness. You know, Terry Virgo, why, 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 do you, why were you in Dubai two or three weeks ago? You know, do you like flying in aeroplanes? Do you like being in foreign countries? You know, one day, <laughs> I'm going to stand before God, and, and God will bring to light the things that you can't see, hidden in darkness, and disclose the motives of my heart. Then, then, we'll find out if it goes up in smoke or not. Then, each man's praise will come to him from God. So, beloved, 
God's given us an absolute, I think it was Watchman Nee, some teacher said this, it's like God's given us a perfectly white, shiny, glorious garment. We're justified freely as a gift. Then it's like he gives us a needle with a golden thread in it. It says, now embroider in there some of the works I want you to do. It doesn't justify us, but it's works he wants to give us. He want, at the end, we give account for what we've done. It's not about being saved. We're saved. He says, well, you'll be saved. That's done. Jesus did that for us. Now he invites us to serve him. And then he said, I want to reward you for it. Now, we don't often think about rewards, do we? In fact, we sometimes say things that make it sound like that's irrelevant. And it's not like we actually say that. It's like, if I can put it this way, it's like we put fragments of things together, which if you add them all up, it seems to say it doesn't matter. Things like this. Things like, like you might say to someone at the end of the meeting, thanks for the, thanks for the way you played the keyboard. And sometimes people say, oh, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. You feel like saying, oh, who was it who played the wrong note? I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't hear any wrong notes, okay? Or, or when they say, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. You say, it was good, but the Lord, oh, was that good? But people say that. They say, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. What are they saying? It's like, well, I wasn't there. God did it. And sometimes you can go into a pulpit, and I really, this doesn't happen to me for years now, but it used to happen to me a lot. You go into the little deacon's room before you preach, and they pray over you. And a friend of mine said that if they do this again, what do they pray? They pray this, oh Lord, hide the preacher this morning. We would see Jesus only. Oh, it's lovely, isn't it? Very religious. Hide the preacher. He said, if I hear it again, he said, I'm going to go into the meeting, I'm going to say, let us pray. And he said, when they close their eyes, I'm going down underneath. <laughs> he said, let's see how they get on without me. Some of those wonderful, wonderful old wooden pulpits, it's actually carved into the wood. Sir, we would see Jesus. You think, well, you're stuck with me. Sorry. <laughs> but do you see what I mean? It's like, it's like an, a slight overstatement. The most modern one that I've heard, and from people I really honor, to be honest, some exceptional people I've heard say this, unfortunately. They say this. God is looking for a faceless army. What do they mean? God's looking for a, a faceless army. Okay? <laughs> what they're saying is God doesn't like your face. What they're saying is God doesn't want your identity involved. God is saying your identity is irrelevant. It wasn't me playing the keyboard. It's not you preaching. Faceless. What, are we all, what does that all amount to? You don't matter because it doesn't matter in the end. Is that what the Bible says? It isn't. It really isn't. It really isn't. So if you say to the keyboard, well, thank you so much. Well, thank you, musicians. Thank you for the time you put in. Thank you that you learned to play. Years, you know, hard working out. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for working together. Thank you for submitting to one another. Thank you for producing that. Well done. We're not somewhere it was. No, it wasn't. Thank you very much. Thank you. God is not looking for a faceless army. God loves faces. God loves names. God loves names more than I love names. I mean, there are, there are pages in here. I'd gladly tear them out, wouldn't you? Just, you know, next to him was this guy. You know, Joash was next to Jehoiada the priest. And, I mean, they're some of the easy ones. You know, if you were a preacher, yeah, tear out the pages. God hates them. Faceless. Get rid of all these names. Let's just be anonymous. They were anonymous. Somebody was in the army. Somebody begat somebody. Who cares? 
That's not, like, that's not the Bible. Somebody was building Nehemiah's wall. We don't know who it was. No, it does know who it was. And some built with vigor and some didn't. And it's noted and it's in the Bible. And God's not threatened by names. David had mighty men and they're named. One guy stood against 300 alone. He's named. One guy jumps into a pit just for fun in the snow to kill a lion. And he's named. God doesn't want a faceless army. He loves individuals. He cares about what we do with our lives. And we will give account one day. And it's no good for us to argue, oh, I was faceless. No, you weren't. It was God who played. No, it wasn't. And God, you see, Paul says here, he will bring to light the things hidden in darkness. Faceless armies, foolishness. It sounds very grand. Oh, God doesn't want people. He does. He wants you the best you can be. And he wants to reward you. He's motivated to reward. And then St. Ignatius of Loyola, you may have heard of, you may not have, he gave, he gave the church this famous prayer. He, he began the Jesuit movement. He gave the church this famous prayer. We do all these things not looking for any reward. Save that of knowing we do your will. Well, to be honest, that sounds wonderful. and It may well have been motivated well. But it's out of step with the Bible. It's out of step. It's making a suggestion that it's not biblical. It's like, imagine Jesus, the very last thing, virtually, virtually the last statement in the Bible. I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to every man according to what he's done. Imagine, are you going to be like Ignatius? Here comes Jesus with the clouds. He's coming with the clouds and he's going to reward. He like, oh, Jesus, Jesus, hold a minute. Sit down a minute, Lord. We just need, we need to explain to you, you know, rewards. We don't think they're very good ethics, you know. Who's going to explain to Jesus? Who's going to say, Jesus, I think you need to keep up. Don't you think, if somebody's wrong, I think it won't be Jesus. It won't be Jesus. Now, I'm not saying, beloved, that our minds should be constantly on, oh, I'll get a reward for this. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that the extreme opposite, that it doesn't matter, is very harmful. It's missing the point. It's taking away from this thing about God's looking for zealous service. God's looking for us to glorify his name. These are what it says in the Bible. God wants us to serve him. God wants us to give our best. Not, oh, it doesn't really matter because it wasn't me. And so these things, we put them together and you make a picture that says, you're anonymous, really. You were just kind of a thing that passed through. Whereas the Bible says, no, you're a person. You have dignity. You have identity. And we will all stand before God one day. And Paul says, when that happens, God will dis- not just see what I did. He will disclose the motives. <laughs> Why you did it. The thing's hidden in darkness no one else can see. That's going to happen to me. That's going to happen to you. We'll stand before God. And all this trivialization that God wants a faceless army is robbing the scripture of its weight and power. So what, what does it need? We just need to press on here. The blood of Jesus cleanses my conscience from dead works because I'm justified by grace. So it's so important, beloved, that when we talk about grace, we get the full picture. It's very easy to say, oh, he's a grace preacher, which means we don't have to do anything. That's why I bring a book. Hey, look, chapter after chapter. We don't lose this grace emphasis. 
We want whole churches freed by grace. We want to put the complete picture together. So what does it mean to serve the living God? What's the difference then? Well, let me give you some of the characteristics of serving the living God. Serving the living God finds fellowship with God in it. Works of power, for instance. Mark 16, 20, the Lord working with them. That's not a dead work. The Lord working with them. Again, 2 Corinthians 6, 1, working together with God. That's a different deal. God's involved. Again, Galatians 2, 8, he who effectually worked through Peter to the Jews, effectually worked through Paul to the Gentiles. In other words, there's a certain area of ministry that they were particularly to be involved in, and God worked with them when they were doing it. It's not like I'm going to go fishing. No, that's where I'm meant to be. God works with us when we're doing the thing God's shaped us for. It's a different deal. That's not conscience work. It's work God's prepared us for. Living works express a lot of diversity because we do the things God's prepared us for. It's lovely that verse that says, God says, I found David, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. It's almost like, I found one who will do my will. God dancing around heaven, I found one who will do my will. And when David had finished, it said this, David fell asleep, having fulfilled the purpose of God in his generation. What a testimony. He did it, he did it, he did it. He did what he was put there to do. These works are not self-justification. They're not conscience stuff. It's what does God want me to do? What does God want me to do? He did what God called him to do. Jesus prayed this beautiful prayer in John 17. What a classic chapter that is. He said, I have glorified you on the earth. I've done the work you gave me to do. You see, we would love to say, Lord, I'd love to glorify you. Can I be Billy Graham? Can I be Jackie Pullinger? I want to be somebody great. Jesus said, I've glorified you on the earth. I've done the work you gave me to do. That's the deal. We do the work he gives us to do. There are works we've been given to do. And Jesus, Jesus used this word accomplish three times. You still it in John 17, I've accomplished. That's what it says, I've finished. The word finished means accomplished, brought to conclusion. That's what it means. It's there in John 4 as well. The disciples have gone to buy food. They come back and they say, Jesus, have you had anything to eat? He's been talking to the woman at the well. And he turns to them and says, I have meat to eat you know nothing about. This is my meat, this is my food, to do the will of him who sent me and to finish, accomplish his work. That's my meat. I want to do the thing he made me for. It's like Paul said, I want to get hold of that for which God got hold of me. When God got hold of you, he had something in mind. You know, Susanna Wesley raised up John Wesley, Charles Wesley. Wow, what a woman. She did the work she was called to do. God wants us to find. And then Jesus said this three times, I said, One, I'm eating this meat to do it. John 17, I've done the work you gave. The last time he uses it is on the cross. We just shout out, it's finished. But what it means is, it is accomplished. I've done it. I've done it. It's a shout of triumph, beloved. It's not like, oh, it's over. He's saying, I've done it. I've 
done the thing you gave me to do. There's no greater privilege. No greater privilege. It says in Ephesians, we are his workmanship, and, and, and the Greek word is poemas. It's one we get our word poem from. Poema. We are his poem, his work of art, one Bible translation calls it. You are his work of art. We are his workmanship, created in Christ for works he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Amazing privilege. Serving the living God. Not trying to justify myself. Not trying to impress other people. It's got far more dignity than that. Grace sets us free from that nonsense. We don't have to do it. What's God got for us? We discern what God has for us. We do the things God has for us to do. You get two souls in the Bible. The soul of the Old Testament. At the end of his life, he says this, I have played the fool. What a comment on your life. In the old King James, it says, I had erred exceedingly. It's a bit like Richard II, the end of Shakespeare's play, where it says, I have wasted time, now doth time waste me. It's like, that was my life. Then you've got the soul of the New Testament. I've run the race. I have fought the fight. Henceforth there's laid up for me. You're thinking about it, Paul? Yes, he seems to be. I'm thinking, henceforth there's laid up for me a crown. You mean you're looking forward? When a guy says, I've finished the race, that's the end, isn't it? I've finished, I've fought. Henceforth, what is more? Yes, he's thinking of more. He's thinking of what comes next. We can get very sentimental at funerals. Well done, good and faithful servant. God knows. Paul says, henceforth there's a crown laid up for me. It says in Hebrews 11, it says for the reward. They did this, they did this for the reward. Looking for the reward. They were looking forward. They took this seriously. We took this seriously. So God wants us not to waste our lives, but to discern who we are. Now, beloved, we tend to be very individualistic people in our generation. And we can be just me and Jesus even. We can bring that into our Christian world. You know, my prayer life, my personal evangelism, my personal saviour, my devotions, my... But the New Testament is much more our, your, us together. So how do we find what we're meant to be for? Well, sometimes in a new young church plant, everybody's doing everything. We're just all mucking in. But gradually, as a church grows and matures, like a church like this, a church that's growing, putting on stature, maturity, you begin to discern where gifts lie. Wendy and I have got 18 grandchildren at the last count, so we get lots of babies around. And it's fun, isn't it, with little babies? And you see these little babies, sometimes, sometimes they see their hand for the first time. It's so funny, isn't it? They're lying, they go, oh, what's that? You know, it's like they stare at their hand. It's joined, it's part of you, you know. Ah. And they, 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 they think toes are for sucking and they think knees are for walking on. When you're a baby, you don't know what the bits are for. But as you grow, you begin to learn. Oh, I see. Feet are for walking on. Oh, hands can do that, buttons and all sorts of things. You know. And you learn what you're there for by serving the body. That's what my hand, that's how my hand learned what it's for. It didn't Wait on God. Find what you're here for. 
No, it's served the body and found what it's here for. And the Bible's full of corporateness. We're in this together. We're building a great church for the glory of God in this part of the world. And, and, a, and a mature church, you can begin to see, boy, when she done that gift of hospitality, that incredible, when that girl prophesies, when that guy does that, when, that, when people move in their different gifts and different skills, we begin to find a mature body growing. We find our part. We find each part working properly, it says in Ephesians 4. The body grows as each part is working properly. And we find what our part is, not by excessive individualism, but by serving the body. And sometimes that is encouragement. Hey, when you do that, you're a blessing. Sometimes it's through correction. Now, when you started that, that was great, but you went on a bit too long and took the meeting effort. No, no, you shouldn't do that. Oh, well, that's what you think of me. I'll go to another church. No, that isn't building a church. That's where we say, thank you so much. I want help. I want to be a blessing. I want to, I want to receive your counsel. Then we grow together. We find what we're good at. And the body benefits. So, beloved, we lose our individualism in that wrong way to find where we fit in our whole body. Living works serve the living God. Last thing I would say is this, that living works express his love. See, dead works tend not to. Conscience work, it's like, it's like someone's in your small group and she's in hospital. Or you think, oh gosh, Mrs. Jones is in hospital. I better go and see her. Or things like this, I ought to go and see her. I almost, I almost feel we need a bell in our heads that when you hear it's like ought to, ring. what do I mean ought to? What do I mean ought to? See, when you stand back, it's like, Lord, do you want me to go and visit Mrs. Jones? And maybe he'll say to you, look, come on, you've got the three kids, you've got to collect that one from school, there's that for your husband, you've got the small group, come on, you can't do that. You mean, you know, you don't have to do that. You know, your conscience is clear, you don't have to do that. Oh, okay. So you say, does nobody get visited in your church? You may get a different answer. You may say, Lord, Mrs. Jones is in the hospital. Do I, have, do I need to go and visit? He may, say, he may say to you, Mrs. Jones is going to have surgery. She's never been in hospital before. She's really scared. I want to express my love to her. And incidentally, you're not even thinking about Mrs. Jones. You're thinking... What will Mrs. Jones think of you if she comes out and you didn't visit her? You're not even worried about Mrs. Jones. You might think, oh, God, I'm so sorry. That is so true. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Come, Lord, I pray for her. Lord, bless her. Give her courage as she comes up to this surgery. I'm going to go and visit her. Now, beloved, the, the nurse sees somebody come in and go out. They don't see the difference between someone who comes, because, well, you better do it. What will she think? You know, you go in, eat her grapes, talk. Oh, there's the bell. I have to go. Well, <laughs> did it. And she's thinking, what was that about? My grapes have gone. <laughs> the nurse just sees it. The angels are saying, this is all going up in smoke soon. <laughs> they know it won't stand the fire test. But if you go in knowing, you know, you're motivated by the love of Jesus. You care about Mrs. Jones. 
You want to comfort her. You want to bring the love of Jesus. It's a completely different deal. It's a completely different deal. God does not want us involved in conscience work. Let the blood of Jesus cleanse your conscience. Be free. Be free to say, no, we're not doing it. And I'm still righteous. Hallelujah. But I'm not indifferent. I'm not careless. I want to serve God. But I'm not going to get my life cluttered up with conscience work. My motivations are going to be tested with fire one day. You know, just to keep other people happy is not going to do it for us. It won't stand the test. Lord, it's for you as far as I know how. It's for you. As, as far as I know. Paul says, as far as I know. But he says, I'm not vindicated by that. It's like, in the end, God knows he'll show us. One day he'll show us. But we certainly don't need to be religious for the sake of it. Otherwise, death will creep in, creep in, creep in. And what used to be vibrant becomes duty. What used to be for Jesus is, what will they think of me? Grace sets us free. The grace of God sets us free. We're not under law. We don't have to do anything to justify ourselves to him who doesn't work, but believes in the God who justifies the ungodly. His faith is regarded as righteousness. I don't have to do stuff. But now I'm home. Now I'm already declared righteous. Jesus is inviting me. I want you to serve me. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Is that the echo of your heart? Yes, Lord. I want to serve you. I want to do the things you have for me. May God help us to do that. Bring great glory. Let us work the works of God while it's day. Let's glorify God. Let's serve him with a passionate heart. Grace is not meant to make us lazy. People are scared of grace. Oh, it'll make the saints lazy. Not if we see the full picture, it won't. It'll set us free, but it'll set us free to serve the living God. Amen? Let's pray.